Thank you, Reggie. Thank you, worship team, for reminding us of the hope that is ours in Jesus. Um, I invite you to pray one more time. I need all I can get here. Pray with me. Jesus, you are our life. You are our hope. And we do ask in your name that your Holy Spirit might be present, that you might open our ears, that we might hear the truth and the glory of who you are, that you might turn our hearts toward you, and that you might guide our lives to live for your glory and for your kingdom. That we might lay hold of the purpose for which you laid hold of us. God of heaven, work in us this morning. Speak to us, we pray. Amen. Well, tell me if you've ever experienced something like this. You, you go in the family room, and there's a member of your family on the couch there watching television, and you go and you, you plop down on the couch next to them, and you say, what you watching? And they're like, shh, this is so sad. <laughs> and so you, you, you sit there, and you watch it for a while, and it's, it's kind of sad, but you're just not getting it. And so, you know, it's five minutes go by, and you go, what's going on? And they go, pass me the tissues. You know, it, it, how can both of you watch the same scene and one be so deeply moved, and the other hardly moved at all. It's because the one person understands all the drama that has led up to that scene, the hopes that have been dashed, the heartache that has been experienced, and how that scene is the fulfillment of so many hopes and broken hopes and dreams. But if you just drop in the middle of it, it's like, meh. I think sometimes we do that with the scripture. We like drop in the middle of the story and we look at a scene and we go, oh yeah, that's kind of, yeah, whatever. And we don't experience the full power of it because we don't understand the story behind it. So this overarching story of scripture, theologians call Heilsgeschichte. I just think that's a fun word. It sounds like a German sneeze or something, you know? <laughs> Heilsgeschichte. It's a compound word like most German words. It's a compound word from the word heil, which means salvation, and geschichte, which means, it's just a fun word, which means history or story. So when that theologians talk about Heilsgeschichte, they're talking about the, 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 the history of salvation or the salvation story. And they're not merely talking about Jesus and the cross. They're talking the, about the entire arc of the history of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. And so in order to get the setting for the story today, that the Palm Sunday and the crucifixion, I'm going to do something and we'll see how well this works. Uh, we're, we're, going to, we're going to cover 7,000 years of history in 12 minutes, okay? <laughs> so buckle up. Here we go. You ready? Previously on Heilsgeschichte. God creates the heavens and the earth, okay? And in the, on the earth, he makes a beautiful garden. And in that garden, he puts Adam and Eve. And he tells them to rule over the garden, to subdue it, to have dominion. Those are kingdom words. They are to establish the loving, gracious, beautiful rule and reign of God and the order of God there in the garden. And before we leave that scene, let me... I need you to understand the nature of this kingdom as God created it. Listen to this, First, uh, Genesis 1.29. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours, he's talking to Adam and Eve, for food and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air 
and all the creatures that move along the ground. In case you didn't get that, he says, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. Now, we have recently moved into cow country, and it's interesting to note that not only is grass good for cows, but cows are good for grass. You see, grass grows and the old growth at the top dies and falls to the ground, and it forms thatch, and that thatch chokes out the grass. But if you have cows that are grazing, they'll come along and just eat off the top old growth. They'll leave the vibrant growing part below, and then they'll go sit under a tree, and they will process that and turn it into fertilizer, and then they will go back out and deposit that fertilizer on the field. Grass is good for cows, and cows are good for grass. Green plants were good for the animals in the garden, and the animals were good for the green grass, for the plants. What about Adam and Eve? They got fruit trees to eat from. Adam's walking through the garden. He grabs a pear. He's eating the pear while he's walking along. He tosses the pear off into the grass. He's just planted a pear tree. Pears are good for Adam. Adam's good for pears. Biologists call this relationship mutual symbiosis, this reciprocal relationship of life-giving life. That was the nature of the garden. It was life-giving life. It was, it was this beautiful dance together where one life benefited the other life and the other life benefited them. It was just, a, it's, a, it's this, this harmony. And then comes the deceiver. And he comes to Eve and he says, Eve, man, God's laws are repressive. You know, God's, it, it, you can do better. I mean, look at that forbidden fruit. It's beautiful and it's tasty and it'll make you smart. It'll make you wise. God's holding you back, Eve. You need to do you. And so Eve does Eve, and what happens? Adam follows and does Adam. And, and, and they get cast out of this garden, this, this life-giving life garden. And what happens the very next chapter? Cain kills Abel. We go from the life-giving life kingdom of God to the life-taking life kingdom of this world. But in the midst of that fall, there is this glimmer of hope. Because when God pronounces judgment on the serpent, he says to the serpent, one day the seed of the woman will crush your head and your lying tongue will be stilled once and for all. Well, the next we hear of this seed is 2,000 years later with Abraham. Abram at the time was in Ur of the Chaldees and God calls him out. And he says to Abram, he says, I am going to give to you and to your seed the land of Canaan. And I will make you into a great nation. And through your seed, all nations will be blessed. Well, 200 years go by. And the children of Abraham, now known as the children of Israel, are not in the promised land. And they're not a great nation. They're in slavery in Egypt. It looks like the promise to Abraham has failed. But the children of Israel, from their bondage in Egypt, they cry out to God. And after 400 years of slavery, God raises up Moses. And there's this tremendous, you know the story, this tremendous deliverance from, from Egypt. And on the way out of Egypt, Moses goes up and meets with God on Mount Sinai. And there on Mount Sinai, God tells Moses what kind of government they are to have. He says to Moses, this is what you're to tell the people. If you obey my commandments and you keep my covenant, then you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
They had just come out of a government where there was oppressed and oppressor, ruler and ruled. And God says, listen, if you keep my commandments and you obey my covenant, you will be a kingdom of priests. Every man, every woman receiving provision from God, receiving love from God and giving love to others. That was the role of the priest, to receive from God and give to others. He said, this is, this is to be your entire kingdom. It is to be a getting life from God and giving life to others. Every one of you. And in holiness, caring for each other in true righteousness. So Israel makes it to the promised land, back to Canaan. But instead of obeying God's commands and becoming a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, we read this in Judges 17.6. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. They, fall, they fell back to you do you. Never mind the commands of God. We're just going to do what we want to do. And it went horribly wrong. Absolutely horribly wrong. I, I, I almost hesitate to tell you the story, but Genesis, or Judges chapter 19, there's a story of a Levite and his concubine and his servant, and they're out traveling. And it becomes late in the day, and they need to find a place to stay. And so they come to this Israelite city of Gibeah. And they go into the city, and there an old man offers them his place to stay. So they go to the old man's house, and while they're at the old man's house, as evening falls, the wicked men of the city, this is an Israelite city, the wicked men of the city surround the house and demand that the old man send the Levite out so that they can rape him. And the Levite and the old man are so scared for their own life that they send out the Levite's concubine, and the men of the city rape her and abuse her throughout the night. And at dawn... She crawls back to the, to the doorway of the house and she collapses there at the doorway. And when the Levite gets up and opens the door, he looks and there's his concubine lying on the ground and he says, get up. She doesn't move. And so he takes her and he puts her on his donkey and he takes her back to his home and he cuts her into 12 pieces and sends a piece to each of the tribes of Israel to declare we have become worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. This is where you do you leads. They were to be a kingdom of priests and they have become a kingdom of predators. They were to be a kingdom, a, a, a holy nation and they have become a vile nation. And because of the, the intensity of the evil of the, of the land, the people cry out to God, God, this isn't working, we need a king. We need someone to lead us because on our own, this isn't going well. And so God raises up King Saul to, to head up the kingdom of Israel. But Saul is more concerned with his own kingdom than God's kingdom. And so God says, nope, Saul, you lost it. I'm giving it to someone better than you. I'm giving it to David. So David takes, takes the throne and David is a righteous king. Now, I, I, I want to take just a second so that we understand what that word means. In our culture, we've cheapened the, the word righteous. I mean, we've, we've reduced righteousness to not doing naughty things. That's not biblical righteousness. Biblical righteousness, when the, when the Bible talks about righteousness, it's talking about defending the poor and the needy and the oppressed and making sure that justice prevails and that the weak are protected from the oppressor. That's righteousness. 
It includes not doing naughty things, but it's so much more. It's caring for the orphans and the widows, defending the poor and the oppressed, and David was that king. He was a righteous king. But after some years, as David grows older, the scripture says, in the spring, when the kings go out to war, David sent Joab out. Not sure what David was thinking. Maybe he's thinking, I'm getting too old for this battle stuff. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, and, I, and I'm king. I mean, I, I shouldn't be putting my life at risk. I don't need to be out there sleeping on the ground eating that nasty food. I, I'm king after all. Maybe I'll, I'll just stay back, maybe play a few rounds of golf, you know, drink some Mai Tais on the roof. I, we don't know what David was thinking, but we do know David stays back. And he's up on the roof, and he looks out, and he sees the wife of his next-door neighbor on her roof bathing. And she's drop-dead gorgeous. And so he sends for her, and he commits adultery with her. And then he finds out that she's pregnant. And to cover that up, he kills her husband. And to make matters worse, if they could be, the reason she's his next-door neighbor is because her husband was one of David's closest, most faithful friends. That's why, he was, that's why his house was next to the palace. This was Uriah the Hittite. He had stood with David for 14 years defending David while Saul pursued him to take his life. And right then, when David is committing adultery with Uriah's wife, Uriah is out on the battlefield fighting for David. David has gone from this king of righteousness to this king who preys on the wife of his best friend and then who preys on the life of his best friend. But unlike Saul, David genuinely repents and God restores him. And David is so grateful for God's forgiveness that he says, God, your ark, you're the ark of the covenant is in a tent. I want to build a house for you. Let me build a temple for the ark. And God says through the prophet Nathan, no, David, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. Your seed, there it is again. He says, your seed, your offspring, who will come after you, he will build a house for me, and I will establish his kingdom in righteousness forever and ever. There is a promised seed coming to David who will once and for all establish the kingdom of God and build a temple, a place where people can commune with God. Well, Solomon is next in line. David dies and Solomon, the son of David, takes the throne. He is literally the seed of David or a seed of David. And what does Solomon do? The first thing he does is spend seven years building this beautiful temple. He builds a house for God. And God prospers Solomon, something fierce. I mean, Israel becomes the most powerful nation in the world and the wealthiest nation in the world. Everyone wants to have a peace treaty with Israel because Israel is the most powerful nation and the richest, and you make some money trading with them if you're at peace with them. But back then, you see, there was this thing that they practiced this type of diplomacy called marriage diplomacy. And the way it worked was this. If you were a king and you wanted to make a peace treaty with another king, you would take one of your most beautiful daughters and you would give her to that king to be his wife and then you were family. And the theory was that family doesn't kill family. Although that's been disproven several times. But, but that, was the, that, was, that was the general theory. 
This is how you made. So Solomon, young Solomon, has got all these kings wanting to give him the most beautiful women in the world as his wives. There's one problem. The scripture explicitly lays out for kings in Deuteronomy, you are not to take foreign wives. You must not take foreign wives or they will lead your heart astray. In fact, it was so serious that not only did Deuteronomy, the law in Deuteronomy say that, but it said, and kings, you're supposed to read this law every single day. And Solomon's like, God, man, this isn't fair. Have you seen these women? I mean, how can you do this to me? This is, oh, how about just a couple exceptions? And so Solomon ends up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. And guess what? They lead his heart astray. Not just a little astray. But at the end of his life, he builds high places for the gods of Chemosh and Moloch and Ashtoreth. Now understand, the worship of these gods did not involve just going and lighting candles and saying some prayers. The worship of all three of these gods involved male and female shrine prostitutes. The worship of all three of these gods involved child sacrifice. In fact, it appears that the primary means of worshiping Moloch was through child sacrifice, and Solomon builds a high place for the worship of Moloch. Once again, we have reverted to a predatory perversion. This was the seed of David. The promise seems to have failed. But as the prophets of the Old Testament call the people to repentance, as Israel begins its downward spiral because of their sins, the prophets call Israel to repentance. And they, but they add one thing in their call to repentance. They say, if you repent, who knows, maybe God will restore you. But whether you repent or not, here's one thing you can be sure of. God's promise to David will not fail. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. What the prophet's saying here is that the family tree of David has been cut down to the very root. And he says, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness a sash around his waist. Now listen to this. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. A little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Do you hear it? Do 
Do you hear it? This promised son of David will restore the kingdom of God, the life-giving life kingdom of God. There will be no more prey and predator. There will be no more oppressed and oppressor. It will be a life-giving life kingdom that this son of David will bring in. He will reestablish over the kingdom of this world the kingdom of God. He will destroy the oppressor and care for the needy. Because of Israel's sin, the nation spirals downward and ends up being taken captive. And for 400 years, the nation of Israel is under the oppressive thumb of one evil government after another. And for 400 years, the prophets are silent. Israel holds on to the hope that one day, one day, please God, the seed of David needs to come, please. And then they hear it. There's a wild man in the Jordanian wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. He's announcing that the seed of David, the king, is coming. Get ready. But he speaks against the government and they kill him. But in the wake of John the Baptist comes this young rabbi named Jesus, forcefully advancing a kingdom. But this kingdom is like no other kingdom. Every other kingdom of this world advances by the by, by the force of threatening life or taking life. The kingdom that this young rabbi is advancing comes by the force of giving life. He gives life to the dead legs of the, of the lame. He gives sight to the dead eyes of the blind. He gives life and recovery to the dying tissues of the leper. It is a kingdom coming with force, but not life-taking life force, life-giving life force. And then he does it. He does the ultimate. He gives life to a dead man. And Lazarus is raised from the dead. And in the words of the Jewish leaders, the whole world goes after him. People say, what more evidence do we need? This is the son of David, the king who has come to rescue us from our enemies, to establish, to rule forever in peace. And, And when he enters Jerusalem, On that first Palm Sunday, they cry out, Hosanna to the who? To the son of David. This is the promised son of David. Blessed be the king of Israel, they call. This is the son of David, the king who would establish his kingdom once and for all. And they are sky high in their expectations. But the week, the following week does not meet their expectations so well. And instead of overthrowing Rome like they had hoped, he talks about his death. And their stratospheric hopes come crashing to the ground in the flames of disappointment. And the Jewish leaders see this and they capitalize on this and they fan those flames of disappointment into flames of anger. And so some of those very people who shouted Hosanna to the son of David are now shouting crucify him, crucify him. John chapter 19, verse 13. Pilate brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement. 
It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to them. But they shouted, take him away, crucify him, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with, with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, down to verse 28. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What does it mean when the son of David says, it is finished? The word finished means completed or perfected in the sense that there is nothing left to be added. It is completely done. What was it that the son of David was to do? Well, the son of David was to vanquish the enemies of God's people. The son of David was to build a, a temple, a place where people could come and commune with God. And the son of David was to establish the eternal kingdom of God. A kingdom of righteousness that would never end. The son of David was to vanquish the enemies of God's people. How can Jesus say it's finished when the enemies of God's people are vanquishing Jesus? How is Jesus defeating the enemy when the enemy has just defeated him in death? Let me read to you from Colossians, chapter 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them by the cross. Paul says, Jesus took our accusations, they were all our accusations that stood against us, all the accusations of our violations of God's law that damned us. They were nailed to the cross with Christ. And, and Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities and triumphed over them by the cross. How is the cross the triumph? In the dystopian thriller V for Vendetta, there's this guy, V, he's this freedom fighter. He's this eccentric guy. He's got these mad karate moves and stuff, you know. He's this freedom fighter. He's fighting against this, this oppressive and evil government. And there's this guy named Creedy who's the leader of this elite force. It's kind of like an evil version of SEAL Team 6. And they're coming after V. And they get V pinned down against the wall. And every one of those soldiers has got their guns pointed at V. And Creedy says this, You've got nothing. Nothing but your bloody knives and your fancy karate gimmicks. We've got guns. And V looks at him and he says, no, you've got bullets. 
and the hope that when your guns are empty, I'm no longer standing because if I am, you're all dead before you reload. Satan comes to us and he says, I've got the law. And the law demands that you die. You've got nothing. And Jesus stands in the gap and he says, no, Satan. You've got accusations. And the hope that when every one of those accusations has been fired into my body, I'm no longer standing. Because if I am, sin, death, and the grave are dead. The king is risen. He has taken every accusation against us in his body. He has triumphed over sin, death, and the grave. He has silenced the mouth of the accuser. And he has rescued his people from the oppressor, triumphing over them by the cross. But the son of David was to do more than simply destroy the enemies of his people. He was to make a way for his people to draw near to God. In Galatians 4, we read these words. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Paul's saying, Jesus was the seed of the woman, born under law as a baby. You see, the law cuts both ways. If you disobey the law, you, you earn judgment and curse. But if you perfectly obey God's law, the Old Testament promises blessing in the favor of God. Jesus grows up under the law. He perfectly fulfills the law of God. He earns God's favor and blessing. And when we place our faith in him, when we become one with Christ, not only does he take our sin on himself, but he gives us his righteousness so that now we are the beloved sons of God. We are the beloved bride of Christ. We are the beloved temple of the Holy Spirit because of the work of Jesus Christ. The son of David has made a way for his people to come and fellowship with God. But the son of David was to do one more thing. And that was he was to establish the eternal kingdom of life-giving life. Now this week I've, I've kind of been on the alert a little bit and I've, I've seen that kingdom on the move. I've seen people laying down their lives for others, giving generously to bless others. I've seen this mutual blessing, but let's be honest. There's a lot of you here that have been hurt in a church setting, who have felt oppressed or abused in a church setting. Why is it that the kingdom of God has not come? If, if it's finished, why is the kingdom of God not come in more fullness? And what about our own lives? Why is it that we struggle with predatory sins like greed and lust and gossip? I mean, greed, we hold wealth to the, to the disadvantage of the poor. In lust, we, we feast on the shame and exposure of another. In gossip, it's its twin. We feast and we savor the failures and the shame of another. In fact, every sin, the essence of every sin, is to deny the love of God, to deny the provision of God, and seek that provision by preying on someone else. 
Why is it that the kingdom of God has not come more powerfully in my life? There's a few possible answers to that question. The first is, none of this is true. This is all some giant social construct that we have made to make ourselves feel better. That we are nothing more than grown-up protoplasmic goo with the singular purpose, if you can call it that, of promulgating our genetic sequence. That this life is utterly meaningless and we have constructed this to try and bring some meaning and this purpose into our meaningless life. That's a possible answer. Or maybe, maybe we, we talk about the kingdom of God being now and not yet. Maybe this is as good as it gets. In this fallen world, maybe this is as much of the kingdom as we can experience. Maybe the best we can do is to try not to do naughty things and hope for Jesus to come back fast before we wipe out. Or maybe, maybe there's another answer. Maybe. We have chosen you, do you, over living as servants of the holy God, over the command of God. Maybe we have thought that God's commands are too restrictive. We've decided, God, I'm just going to opt out a little bit on that one. Hear the words of Jesus. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man gain in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Jesus tells us that if we are to follow him, we must deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. Now, what sane person, when given the choice between a couch and a cross, would ever pick a cross? I mean, you'd have to literally be deranged, some psychopath, some, some, some masochistic person with a death wish to pick a cross over a couch. But why did Jesus pick the cross? You say, well, Jesus picked the cross because he loved the Father and he wanted to bring the Father glory. Yes and amen. Thank you, Jesus. You say, Jesus chose the cross because he loved you and I and he wanted to bring us into God's family that we might taste the sweetness of eternal communion with the, with the God who exceeds all others in truth and beauty and goodness. Yes and hallelujah. But there's a third reason why Jesus went to the cross that entails those two. Jesus went to the cross for the sake of his own joy. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of God. You see, the call to come and die is a call that we might truly live. It is the nature of love in Jesus that... that, that it, it is the nature of love to find joy in bringing joy to your beloved. It is the essence of love to find delight in bringing delight to your beloved. 
It is the essence of joy to find life in giving life to your beloved. Jesus went to the cross because you are his beloved and it was his joy to give you life. Jesus calls us to that joy when he says, pick up your cross. We have chosen the couch over the cross because we have underestimated the reward of the cross and underestimated the cost of the couch. The call to come and die is a call to come and live a resurrected life. In the resurrection power of Jesus. Close with this. Paul says in Philippians 3, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I consider all things. Paul says, I have given up everything for Christ. I have sacrificed everything for Christ. And he says, I consider them rubbish. King James says, dung. That's the old English way of saying poo. Now, pardon the vulgarity of this, but it's the point Paul's making. When you get up in the morning and you have your morning coffee... And then you go to the bathroom and you do your business and you flush the toilet. Do you ever have any regrets? Do you ever say, boy, I wish I had that back. (laughs) Paul says, I have given up everything this world has to offer. And it's like that. I have absolutely no desire to get it back. Why? Because what I have gotten is the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. We wallow in the middle of this call to be part of God's kingdom and we straddle a foot in the kingdom of the predator and the prey and a foot in the kingdom of life-giving life. And Jesus says, die to this world. Step into the kingdom of God. By the power of the Spirit, you have communion with God. Step out, live in love and righteousness. Die to this world and live for me. And in there, there is life and you will have no regrets of what you've given up. And in that called sacrifice, joy is our hope. We have another hope. We know how the story ends. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Amen.